Boot Works. Theatre. Talk Shop. Bootworks Theatre Talk Shop. Episode 4 here of Bootworks Theatre Talk Shop, a new podcast hosted by me, James Baker. In this first series, I'll be talking to a whole host of interesting children's theatre makers and producers who, in their own way, offer something new, exciting and potentially challenging to the world of children's performance. Today's conversation is with Andy Field, a renowned artist, writer and curator based in London, whose work Lookout invites audiences to imagine a future alongside a child, whilst gazing out upon a rooftop cityscape. I was fortunate to see the work during a brief run at London's Arts Admin, but for this conversation we met at the newly relocated HQ of the Live Art Development Agency in Bethnal Green. Hosted courtesy of the incredibly generous Lois Keaton, CJ Mitchell, and coordinated through the organisational wizardry of Amy Paul. So here we go, this was my chat with Andy Field. Hi Andy. Hey James. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm very well. Thanks so much for finding some time to come and talk to me. You're welcome. Um, It's nice to see you after a bit of a hiatus, I think. I don't know when the last time we saw one of you was. But it's usually fleeting, but very pleasant. Yeah. Always like very fond memories of a a lot of time spent together in 2010, watching you climb up and down a ladder in a silver foil suit. We did spend a lot of time together in that month. Yeah, Yeah, maybe that was that. (laughs) Yeah, that was a considerably life-changing month for me, yeah. particularly. Yeah. That, uh, so that, yeah, for people that won't know that, most people won't know that now, seven <laughs> years later. Yeah. Um, but you kindly hosted me climbing to space on a six-foot ladder. Yep. Um, very last minute, as I remember it, as well. Yeah. Um, and we managed to take over your foyer and cover it with 43,710 stars over the course of a month. <laughs> I think it, it, it's, it's still one of the pieces that, that people talk about the most um, where, when, when, you know, when remembering Forrest Frings. They're like, that guy that climbed in. Unfortunately, they don't go, James Baker from Bootworks. Yeah, oh, yeah. Go, yeah, that guy that did the, on, that, on the ladder. Um, yeah, but. story of my life. I'm <laughs> I, what I quite liked about that project is that it took a f- people a few times of, because Forrest, has, Forrest Fringe historically is that, peculiar space where strange things tend to happen I think a lot of people assumed I was some kind of peculiar janitor (laughs) fixing a light bulb on the ceiling before working out that it was actually quite a profound piece of work about (laughs) about aspiration and uh, failure and uh, yeah or not Uh, anyway but we're not here to talk about my work we're here to talk (laughs) about yours um so I had the great pleasure recently of seeing Lookout or not really seeing Lookout of experiencing Lookout (laughs) Uh, your work with uh, your new work with children can you just uh, firstly kind of describe to us how that performance works so the sort of experience from an audience perspective sure so lookout is a one-to-one encounter for one adult audience member and one child performer stood somewhere high up uh, overlooking the city and or overlooking uh, the place, a, a, a place. It's normally been cities, but we just, the most recent version was actually in Clandidno, which is a town, <laughs> uh, which they were very keen to point out. And the, the, what happens, so if, as for an audience member, what happens is that you arrive um, in a group of up to eight audience members, and each of you is given uh, a little silver speaker and uh, invited to come and stand uh, or sit 
looking out over like a, you know, a really sort of epic panorama of the place that you're living. Um, so it might be that you're on a rooftop or you're on a hilltop or you're on one of the very top floors of, um, of a building. Uh, and then on the speaker, you'll hear the voice of, um, of a child, but that child is telling you that they are um, 39 or 40 years old, and they start to describe the view that you can see in front of you, but with all of these significant differences, um, you know, flying cars and motor, motor-powered streetlights and... Uh, uh, you know, parks on the rooftops and such like. Um, and, you know, with maybe a few things still the same as well. Uh, and, and while they're speaking, uh, while the voice on the speaker is um, speaking, suddenly uh, there appears next to you uh, an actual small person looking through a pair of binoculars out of the view in front of you. Uh, and when the voice on the speaker finishes, that person... Uh, introduces themselves and it turns out they are the same person that was on the speaker but they are actually only nine or ten years old and then you proceed to have a conversation with them about the city about each other about your lives about the things that you want to do in the future or the things that you used to want to do in the future and that conversation is interspersed with the further uh, audio recordings that imagine that same view at, uh, at later points in the future and then after about half an hour or so, they disappear off just as quickly as they arrive. And, um, and that's it. It's a self. So it's a, yeah, it's a sort of simple experience. I, I suppose, yeah, we think of it as, a, as, a, as an encounter, as a space for two people to meet and have a conversation who, who might not normally meet and who might not normally give each other the time to have a a meaningful conversation about about things like you know the city and its politics and its future. Mm. And it is uh, I I'm interested you describe it as simple. I think it's deceptively simple actually. <laughs> uh, and for me, I found it quite a, a complex experience when I spent some time with uh, Sogdiana. I think. Oh, yeah. Sardiana? Yeah. She was great. Yeah. And each, um, I think what makes it so particular to the individual having the conversation is that uh, ev- all eight people interact with a different child, yes, don't they? That's and right, you hear yeah. a different child's voice. So there's eight different mm. iterations at any one time of the performance yeah. as, it, as and, it happens. And, and up to 16 in total, because obviously the, the children work in shifts so that, you know, we have numerous slots each day so have up to six slots uh so yeah so you could come at two different times in the same day and speak to not just a different child but a completely different kind of cohort of of children hello my name is charlie i'm 100 years old and i'm standing on the top of hill terrace and looking out over london hello my name is ella i am 100 years old hello my name is eva Hello, my name is Gethin. I am a hundred years old. Hello, my name is Ariama. I am a hundred years old. Hello, my name is Shania. Hello, my name is Catherine. I am one hundred years old. Hello, my name is Charlie. I am ninety-nine years old. Hello, my name is Shakira. I am one hundred and one years old. I am standing at the top of Hill Terrace and looking out over Sandidno, and I can see Elderly Town where every
Happy Granny and Grandpa will be in charge and they have to work together and I can see there is a bullet train going from India to America and then to China and Sandidno and Ireland. I can see houses turning into boats and people going around in their houses and moving around and going on holiday. I can see a lot of people playing on computers and Xboxes. Oh, also I can see a bingo place. That's not as big as all the others. It's a small place but a lot of grannies can fit in there. Also, the hill terrace isn't, lo- isn't any longer a hill. It's a tree. And I see a... The boy on his phone with blue hair. I could see a man looking at the stars. Sandidno is not called Sandidno anymore. It is now called Clagnatir, which means rock. Nature. No, nature rock. It's a fun place for kids to play. There is some swings, a laser place, a pool pit, and a slide to go down to the Instead of going in a plane and paying so much money, um, it's not that expensive. You can go through the bullet train right through and go in the tunnel and you can just travel underneath the ground so you won't have to um, so you won't have to uh, fly. And the zip lines going in and out of the massive building. Some bad people sometimes get in but most of the time they get stopped by the robots. I can see my house, the third tree from the left on the right side of, of the shopping tree. It looks a lot different now because it's been separated into four islands. And I see a machine, uh, it can tell people if they're bad or good, and if they're bad they'll get sent away. You're not allowed to be bad or you will get just a little whip with a cane by Granny Smith who is the head granny. And the houses are free and the drinks are free. Kids can play all day but they still have to go to school. Bet on water. And instead of just being allowed to vote when when you're 18, you have to take a maturity test when you're 10. And if you pass, then you're allowed to vote. And if you don't, then you have to take another one when you're 15. And, and then the same rules apply. And you do it every five years until you until you pass. You're not allowed to drink. You're not allowed to smoke. Or you're not allowed to, like, hurt anyone, hit anyone. Or swim in the sea. Because there's sharks. The only rule is no girls allowed. Being a hundred years old feels really weird because I'm still alive by a hundred. I can't believe I'll stay alive until that age. Because I'm a hundred years old and my back really hurts, my head really hurts, I can't walk properly, sometimes I have to be pushed in a wheelchair, I do not go abroad anymore, I do not go on holiday, I stay here getting ill a lot. Being 101 years old isn't that bad because I am one of the granny mayors so I'm very flexible and like a ninja. It's horrible being 99 years old because you're old and I feel quite old being 100 but I feel lucky as well because not a lot of people get to be, get to live this long to be 100. It's time
I can remember when I was 10 years old and Shandidna was nothing like this. We had a mayor but don't have any of that now, we just have grannies. Although I'm old, my favourite thing to do was go on the zip wire. But one thing I do enjoy, I enjoy watching kids playing all day. That's one thing and that reminds me of me when I was a young girl. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I always, uh, I mean, Becky, my producer, always sort of, um, it's interesting, we had a conversation about this, about describing it as a simple piece. When I, I, I begin the piece by introducing it and handing out these speakers, and when I do so, I always sort of begin by saying this is a very simple experience, it last about 20 minutes or so. And, um, and, and, and Becky said to me, and why, why, why do you describe it as simple? You know, it's, it sounds like you're trying to kind of, uh, you know, sort of under, underplay it or, or you know, you're not, you're not giving it its due credit. But the reason that I describe it as simple is because it's a... Because quite often we have people come... Because it's a participatory piece involving young children, um, we quite often have people come who aren't an audience that's fluent in the grammar of like live art and performance. And that's really important to me. I want people coming who are like mums and dads and uncles and also, you know, local people who've just heard about it. And um, it's important to me that those people are put at ease immediately. In fact, that all people are put at ease immediately. Uh, and, uh, you know, that it's made apparent that this isn't going to be signed of a, a complex interaction that's going to demand lots of you, you know, <laughs> kind of conceptually or physically, uh, you know, that people, that people might, you know, when, when a performance takes you out of your comfort zone as an audience member, I think it's important to put people at their ease. So talking about it as simple is, is really just a sort of matter-of-fact thing of saying you're not going to have to do much that's complex here beyond having a conversation. Mm. But within that, certainly a, a lot of thought and care and practice, you know, uh, trial and error, has gone into getting the kind of the right balance and uh, the sort of, of the various elements within the piece, yeah. you know. Uh, so yeah, I, there is there is kind of there is complexity and nuance to what's going on, but embedded within a, a form that it tries to remain as simple as possible, so that you know people can concentrate on the conversation that they're having rather than on any of the kind of the structure or the apparatus of the performance. Mm. And I think there's. You, when you talk about uh, putting people at ease in terms of uh, the languages of live art, mm. uh, I think that's absolutely right, and I think you do that in a really disarming way. But I think also, alongside that, you've also got to be—you don't have to be—but it makes the piece more enjoyable if you are if you have a fluency in how to talk to children, <laughs> um, because potentially—and that's one of the sort of challenges I found in negotiating the piece—is that. Initially, you are asked to look out over the city mm. from a great height. And that puts you in quite a particular headspace. There's almost a poeticism to the act of looking out. You know, it's a, it's a romantic notion of this mm. sort of sublime vista that puts you in this really strange 
um, poetic headspace. And then the children, as they talk, by their very virtue of being children and the way that they imagine futures and the things that you're hearing, are really quite profound and quite beautiful. And when they come and talk to you, you're both trying to negotiate how to talk to a, tu- uh, a child that is clearly very coherent, is clearly <laughs> very intelligent, is clearly um, very poetic, and you almost don't want your answers to disappoint them. Yeah. So when they're asking you questions, um, I found myself trying to say things that were that felt like it, they lived up to the expectation <laughs> yeah. of the view or lived yeah. up to the, the imagination of the child. Does that make sense? Does yeah, it, it does. It's, it's funny to hear you describe it that way. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was definitely really interested in this sort of like the, the, the juxtaposition of the kind of the sort of like the spectacle and an epicness of the, of, the, of the view, of the vista and the kind of intimacy of the conversation. And, um, you know, the, I suppose partly that's about agency um, in the sense that... Um, I mean, that when I think of, I mean, this is going to be like, this is maybe, uh, this is a very a- academic reference point, but when I think of that view, of the view of, um, of a city from the top of a building, I think of um, uh, Michel de Soteau, The Practice of Everyday Life, yeah. and I think of, um, uh, you know, standing on the 111th floor of the World Trade Center looking out at New York, and he has this way of describing it as, um, as a, the, um, as a, as a city caught between two oceans, between the Atlantic and the American Ocean. And here is this New York itself, which is kind of like a undulation of buildings. But the whole, the whole point of that section, as far as I understand it, in, in, in the practice of everyday life, is that that view is, is almost um, uh, disempowering. It makes the city feel like this, this vast, uh, impenetrable entity it's huge and and uh, unbreachable, um, and that actually the city is not those buildings and that architecture and that kind of concrete expression of power, but actually it's the it's the intimate interaction of uh, you know people on the streets, the kind of network of, of conversations and journeys that make up the city. So. Uh, yes, yeah, so there's, the, there's a de- deliberate juxtaposition there of saying, you know, here is this view that is so vast and makes us feel so small, but then suddenly here is this conversation that is so small, but kind of counterintuitively um, makes us feel very powerful, makes us feel empowered, uh, you know, to think about the future and to think about our role in the future, me as an adult, you as a child. Um, and... Um, and yeah, so so I, I it, yeah I, I that that is that juxtaposition that comes from the the view is important to me. Um, in terms of like you know the, the managing navigating that conversation, um, I think that uh, partly it and and um, having the comfort of, of of knowing how to speak with children, it is an interesting one, you know. Um, I mean, the children always will often, once they've done it a few times, they have, get a real sense of how uncomfortable the people speaking to them <laughs> are, you know. And they like chatty people. Um, and, you know, they'll sometimes they'll come back and be like, well, that person didn't have a lot to say. <laughs> yeah. um, but but I, I think partly that, 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 
maybe that sense of discomfort is, well, not necessarily discomfort, but that kind of feeling slightly out of the familiar rhythms of a conversation is important, you know, that, that actually trying to enable the children to be in charge is really important. And that is the engagement, isn't it? I think that's what's um, unusual in it as well, in that they know how the performance is going to go, so mm. they're holding all the cards. Yeah, absolutely. Which is refreshingly um, a reversal of what tends to happen yeah. in everyday life. And it's interesting. I mean, the, I think that the, 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 the genesis of the piece was actually um, something, a very small project that I made for the Natural History Museum a few years ago. The collector's piece? No, even before that. Oh, right. This is like um, maybe 20, uh, well, I, maybe like 20, 2012, perhaps, um, I, I made a piece called um, In Spirit. So it was part of um, the, the, the games company Hide and Seek uh, did uh, when they were still yeah, existent. Sad, sad yeah, no longer with us. Um, they, they've not died. They've not, <laughs> none of them have actually died. They've just gone on to other things. That's, yeah. um, <laughs> that sounds more... <laughs> they're now sadly departed. than it. Yeah. yeah, after that terrible, you know, 40-40 in accident of 2014. Um, never to be seen again. Yeah. Um, they just, they hid so well <laughs> that they were, they were never almost, found again. They were truly great at games. Maybe it's a durational hide-and-seek where <laughs> oh, they were I really just, hope so. That was the final game structure yeah, that they employed. It's like... It's like uh, hide-and-seek uh, meets... Um, fuck, what's that guy's name? can't remember. Lois, what's the name of the guy that did the year-long performances? It's completely gone out oh, of my Teshing. head. Oh, Teshin Che. The book's oh, up yeah. there, look. Oh, the, into, the, into the real... I've got that book. Anyway, it's a yeah, it's like, it's like Tetch and Shea, isn't it? It's like hide and seek meets Tetch and Shea. Like, they're going to reveal that they've actually been hiding for five years. <laughs> um, anyway, so hide and seek did this event at the um, Natural History Museum, and I was asked to make a piece for the Spirit Collection, which is part of the, um, uh, the part of the Natural History Museum where, where they have all these creatures in, in glass jars in, like, Alcohol, you know, preserved in alcohol, in spirit. And, um, yeah, what I, what I ended up doing, I wanted to, what I wanted to create a... a um, I, I wanted to create a situation, I think this is maybe probably partly inspired by um, Mammalian and Darren. Uh, I wanted to create a situation in which the children were in charge in the museum. So whereas children are normally the ones that are kind of taken around museums and shown things by adults, I wanted to create a situation in which the children were, were in charge. So the, the, the idea became that, um, that there, we kind of cornered, we um, fenced off one section of the spirit collection with, uh, you know, police hazard tape. And we said that the, the exhibits in this section are so fragile that even looking at them with adult eyes will cause them to start to kind of disintegrate and fall apart. So we need uh, children to go and look at them and tell us what's there. So the way that it would work would be that, the, uh, that an adult would be blindfolded. And it was normally like, you know, a mum or dad uh, or a, like a carer. Um, rather than strangers, but like an, the adult would be blindfolded and the child would lead them 
through the spirit collection, describing to them three things of the children's choosing that they found there. And then at the other end, then the adult would be interviewed about what it is that they'd seen. And, um, uh, and, and we'd record the interviews. I've, I actually turned it into a sound piece, which I can send you a link to. Great. Um, and it was really, and, and we, it, you know, it went very well. And we did it a couple more times. We did it at the South Bank Center where we, um, we did it at the South Bank Center where we used an old book of photographs rather than spirit collection. And we did it at the Arnolfini Gallery where we used um, pieces of art from their old archive. Um, and each time it was, yeah, it was really uh, lovely because, it, you know, watching, especially because the adults were suddenly so fragile, so vulnerable with this blindfold on and watching like a sort of six or seven year old try and, in most cases, try and very carefully lead their, their mum or dad. In some cases, just grab them and be like, we're going here now. Um, and then have them describe to them um, uh, you know, as carefully as they could what they could see. And so to reverse those normal museum roles or those gallery roles was really lovely and um, very satisfying. And how much the children loved hearing the parents or the adults describe back what they'd told them. I think that was the most unexpected thing, was like actually the interview at the end, the children loved hearing the person, you know, they were like, because that's what I said, and now it's being echoed by, you know, my mum or my dad. They're, yeah. they're, they're saying what I said. And, um, and so I think that the seed of Lookout was probably buried in that piece and in that sense of trying to, you know, create a situation in which children are listened to with the care and respect that is normally reserved for adults. Mm. Which is strange that it's, it's still such a radical notion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also in terms of not that any of this should be reduced to a learning outcome, mm. but we know through teaching theory that kids learn better when they're able to teach other people the thing that they know. Mm. So just yeah. as a simple well, I mean, act of uh, embodying that knowledge, taking it with them because they've taught someone else, yeah. they I mean, become the experts. I think that was definitely the other thing when I was thinking about it was, again, to, to not, you know, over-intellectualise what we were doing, but um, was, um, uh, was thinking about Ronciere and about the ignorant schoolmaster yes. and the yeah, idea yeah. of, you know, that the, 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 the best... Teach, yeah, how do you teach someone something that you don't know? And so he, he talks about the idea of a situation in which you have two people learning together a third thing that neither of them knows. And so again, that's the setup, that's sort of deliberately, that's the setup with Lookout that you have these two people and then you have this third thing, this sort of subject, as it were, of the conversation, which is the city which you can constantly like look back to and look out on. And that kind of, uh, yeah, so that's the sort of, that's the structure of, 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 of the discourse, really, in, in Lookout. Um, but also, on, in, in, in more practical terms, it, you know, it gives you and the children, it gives both the children and the adults like something to lean on, you know, the city is there to lean on. It's, the, you know, the, the, one of the first things that the children ask is, you know, you, first you can ask me some questions 
about the city and then later I'll ask you some questions. And every time it's like, you know, like a child is, what do you want to ask them? Like, you know, it's, suddenly you're kind of like, oh God, I don't know, I know what I want to ask you. But the city is there in front of you, you know. It's yeah, there. you've got a point of reference that you you've can got, uh, yeah. very easily yeah, absolutely. refer to. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, it is both of you negotiating that third thing. Mm. I've not thought of it in that way. Yeah. For me, that all comes out of um, looking back a bit further and whilst we're being academic, um, Dorothy Heathcote's Mantle of the Experts um, strategies where the children are employed as the to generate a tangible outcome. So they might be employed as architects and the assumption is from the off that they know implicitly how to be an architect. Of course, mm. of course a kid knows that. <laughs> um, but actually what they come up with are very um, feasible solutions to real-world problems. But crucially, the outcome has to be tangible. So it's not mm. in, in school or whatever, so many of the outcomes are hypotheticals. Whereas in this piece, you're there with a, an adult teaching them or talking mm. to them about the city. And it does feel, it feels really exciting. I presumably for the child, it certainly feels exciting for the adult. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think most, most for, for most of them it's exciting, yeah. And I think that uh, that's really interesting what you, you say about, you know, tangible outcomes. That is really important, I think, to the, to the piece that um, it, it is trying to make that the outcomes feel tangible at every step and, and it, 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 or to make their, their ideas feel like they have um, weight and presence in the world, right? Uh, that I feel that children's... In fact, few of us maybe feel like our ideas have weight and presence <laughs> in the world. I mean, I'm like a fucking privileged white man, right? And still I can feel sometimes like, you know, no one cares what my opinion on things are. So, you know, you know especially small children, especially children from, from, um, from other backgrounds, you know, uh, that we, we tend to try and work with more particularly children whose voices aren't normally heard. So, so a lot of it is, 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 is about trying to render, render tangible their opinions and demonstrate that the way in which those opinions can, can generate meaningful outcomes in the world. Um, one really uh, simple example, like almost a kind of little symbolic example within the piece is that, that having this illustrator who... Um, uh, we get uh, every place we go. We get a local illustrator to listen to the children's descriptions, and then they they draw a, a an artist's impression of the city as the children imagine it will be thirty years in the future, and that is then turned into like a series of postcards, and each audience member gets a postcard, but also the children will take one away, and the the, the point part of the point of that I think is to say. Um, these ideas that you had, or you know, these little games that we played in class, in school, or or in after school in a workshop, um, they have resulted in this. You know, a, an, an adult has listened to that, and they've and spent time. Yeah, <laughs> and not just an adult, but a professional, a professional artist, a professional illustrator has listened to that and and drawn this. And here, here you can see your, your ideas made tangible, made into a real thing that exists in the world. And admittedly, at that stage, it's only a drawing, but then hopefully, 
that's enough of a kernel to excite yeah. the the rest of the absolutely and so and it's cool i mean the one that i've got from arts admin it's pretty cool, cool that one yeah, it was yeah. pretty cool that one yeah <laughs> he was really good that guy john uh, he, he did a wonderful job but um you know yeah and so it's sort of that those things i think and and i worked with um sibylla peters on it for a few days and she was absolutely I mean her work is incredible and I think specifically for that reason to do with the space that she makes for children's voices to participate in the kind of the sort of the social and political discourse of a place you know and and that was one of the first things that she said is you know like all these ideas they're coming up with like what do they you know how are they gonna how are they going to impact upon the, the city? And so one of the things that came out of talking with her was to ensure that every place that we go to, a real effort is made to engage with people like city councillors, town planners, architects, uh, religious leaders, to get them to come and participate in the show. You know, we, we send a, either myself or the artistic director of the venue or the festival sends a special letter out requesting that they you know asking people to come so we've had you know in bedford we had like the mayor of bedford come and we had city councillors in 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 manchester in auckland in um uh, riga you know we've had city councillors come and and speak to the children and participate in the show and and we really try and make an effort to sort of let the children know that your your thoughts and opinions are going to influence the kind of um, the the sort of the, the civic processes of the city. You know, those councillors will take what you've said, and it might influence the way that they vote or the things that they instigate within the within the city. So you don't need to wait until you're an adult to be you know. Um, whatever you know to, to to make an impact in the world your voices now as children are participating in the in the in the in the discourse in the, in the in the in the body politic of the of the city the things that are the same in Llandid now like the seagulls are still around so and sometimes the weather is just like it used to be i think people will be much happier now because like there's less rubbish and no one's getting stung by any jellyfishes, no one's getting attacked by the seagulls and everyone's just having fun now. No, I think I saw look out. <laughs> this is the third time James has had to do this because he can't get his microphone to work properly. So let me say this um, as if for the first time because I am a trained actor. Are you? No. Shortly after I saw Lookout, no. Before. Sorry. Fuck. I'll tell you what, I'm going to do it for you because okay. it's quite a serious topic. It so. is. And I um, it. I uh, so, yes, you are right that shortly before um, you came to see Lookout, and before Lookout happened in London, it was the sort of Grenfell Tower fire. And I think that resonated with a lot of people when they saw it in London. But it, it's interesting because I, f I feel like these moments of, 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 of national crisis and, 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 and soul-searching have kind of followed the project around right from its uh, first iteration in Glasgow. Um, 
that when we did it in Glasgow, it was it was 2015, and it it. The first performances of Lookout were on the day after the general election, um, when David Cameron, uh, you know, swept to power with uh, with a majority, which was very very unexpected at the time. I, I think the general consensus seemed to be that it was probably going to be a hung parliament, that maybe Labour would be the larger party under Ed Miliband. And so there was a real, especially in a, you know, a, a properly, you know, a, a, a proudly left-leaning city like Glasgow, there was a real sense of shock in the morning. And, and a lot of us were, were sort of wondering what, what was happening in the world. And, um, and that kind of really, that continued to be the case. I mean, the show then was developed all through 2016, which, you know, will, will go down as an absolute shocker. <laughs> in history, you know, that whilst um, Brexit was happening and, 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 you know, Trump was sort of striding through the sort of American political landscape, kicking puppies and, and everything else, we were, we were making this project, we were working with, you know, children. Um, and that was something that I really kind of, clung on to at the time and continue to do as we sort of continue to exist in the in the fallout from from you know a, a, a pretty bad two years for democracy right um is that actually um again i think that spending time with those children really and talking about the future and what they think of the future and, and even what they think the future is, right? Because at the age of 10, the future is pretty much everything, you know, pretty much your whole life. Mm. For us now, the future is, is, is you know, is, 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 you know, maybe half our lives, a, a third, you know, two thirds if we're lucky. Um, mm. For other people, even less, obviously. Um, so, you know, it, it really demanded I suppose it, it, it demanded two things from me. One was to, 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 to sort of try and think in much sort of broader terms. I, I think that we're, you know, the, the, I think the nature of the internet and the sort of 24-hour news as a phenomenon sort of almost demands that we live in this perpetual present. And it's a present that is constantly, you know... Um, filled with alarm and, 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 you know, near panic. We're constantly on what, like orange alert or amber alert or something, you know. The, 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 a, a state of kind of, 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 of a, a present suspended in perpetual panic, right? And, and that actually you, you have to try and, you know, think beyond the immediate crisis of contemporary politics and begin to imagine what a kind of, um, what a new social contract would be. And then the second part of that is the fact that, you know, that you're spending all this time with children talking about, you know, their cities where they live and about changing those cities, about politics, about the environment, about everything else. That you're, you're beginning to build in kind of microcosm, 
a, a sort of version of a of a social contract that's built around the local, that's built around kind of interpersonal uh, relationships, built around kind of, of discourse and discussion, and, and uh, you know, yeah, just the sort of that reminder that cities are a much older organizing principle than than nations and countries, and and that a lot of you know what's good about the world can be and what's bad about the world is rooted in those cities but if we can begin to kind of try and find ways of of you know rebuilding reimagining those cities from the ground up through children through adults coming together to have conversations to imagine a better place about in a better world then that that is something you know positive to hold on to yeah uh, I mean, it's a bit of a tangent from Grenfell, but I, 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 I do think that it, it I, I, again, the, the piece became a, a means for people to think beyond the pain and trauma of that immediate present crisis and begin to think about what we need to build in order to prevent that horror from, you know, reoccurring. Mm. And it felt for me, and I think we've spoken about this previously elsewhere somewhere, that um, that the children brought out the best in the participants, that when, um, for instance, there's two things that's happened to me recently uh, that makes me think about the future, and one of them was Lookout, and one of them was becoming a guide parent or a, an agnostic godparent, if you like. And one of the expectation of that role was to write a letter to an 18-year-old Olivia mm. for her to open in 18 years' time. And we were encouraged to imagine a future for that child and to give advice uh, about how she might live her life. And I found it really difficult to imagine a, a utopian future or to imagine a world that is better, having lived through some of the current processing processes that we're living through, like mm. uh, a conservative government with years of austerity like Donald Trump like Brexit and becoming more marginalized as a, a nation um, can you talk a little bit about how you find kids in terms of their projection of the future mm. from mean, around the world as well it's interesting um, yeah I, I think I used to be similar in that a lot of the work that I made when I was younger had this like you know really probably quite cliched apocalyptic flavor to it you know there were shows about you know epic sort of disasters and about the end of the world and this constant reiteration of the idea of the end of the world and then uh and i think and you see a lot of that these days you know i you go to like the edinburgh festival you see the number of pieces that are sort of you know talk about the end of the world or, 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 or use that language and that, you know, within the piece. And I, I was... Are you uh, feeling more hopeful as you get yeah, older? Yeah, well, no, it's just that I've... I think it's just that I've grown cynical about that as a tool, you mm. know, that um, I, I think it's actually quite a kind of indulgent escapist route, you know. Um, it's... Uh, what, what do you call it? I, I can't remember the name of the guy. I think it might be... Um, Raymond Williams or someone who said it's easier to imagine uh, the end of the world than it, than the end of capitalism. Yeah. 
Um, and so it does, it does feel like it's a slightly kind of indulgent fantasy. Also because, you know, uh, built into a lot of those apocalyptic narratives is the idea that you're a survivor, which again feeds into this kind of, uh, a certain kind of narcissism, that you're, you're special, you're important, you are the saved one, you know, like Will Smith in I Am Legend, right? Um, so so I, I suppose that what, what the, this project more than other projects taught me is that, you know, the more interesting question, the more difficult question is why, what, what happens when the world doesn't, you know, what happens when the world doesn't end? What happens when the future isn't fundamentally, you know, when there isn't a kind of looming apocalypse on the horizon? Um, that, that what, how are, you know, what are the kind of big and small decisions that will need to be made about how we remake society to make it better, to make it fairer, to make it work for everyone. And, um, and that, those are some of the kind of questions, I suppose, we approach within, within the piece. And, and um, I mean, interestingly, built into the kind of structure of the piece is, is a kind of, is, a, is, is, I suppose, a different kind of layers of possible futures, right? So there is, I think, certainly within the first part, um, an emphasis on the idea of, of like a better city or a better place. And, you know, a lot of the work that we do in the workshops are getting the children to imagine the improvements that they would make to make the city a better place, right? So there's a kind of implicit, if not utopianism, at least an optimistic uh, trajectory to that. But then, you know, the next part of it is kind of deliberately, we start to think about the environment and the impact it's going to have on the city. Um, and that is about them thinking, probably not, I wouldn't say in a dystopian way, um, it's probably more like a kind of, um, you know, a quite sort of grim environmental realism, you know, that things like f sort of extreme weather circumstances, floods and droughts and bigger storms are going to become more of a regular feature of our lives and how we, how, we, how we cope with that and how we live with that and how that impacts upon the places that we live and how we live in them. Will, will be really important. So that is another kind of thread. And it's, and, and then the kind of, again, finally, we sort of ask them to kind of imagine what they think a, an ideal future city would be like. So there's, there, there are these, it's not like one single kind of um, oppressive vision of what the future is going to be like. And it's either, you know, utopian or dystopian. It's trying to create something more nuanced and like, you know, probably a, a sense of the future as, 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 as possibility and threat. And the conversation that you have is very much about, you know, how, how do you live with that, you know, and, and lean into the, to the, to the, the possibilities and, and resist the, the, the kind of the threats. Is part of it for you as well about um, leaving a legacy in terms of uh, working with children and adults and getting them to think about the world in a particular way? And we, t we spoke previously kind of about 
how useless theatre is in terms of leaving anything as an ephemeral mm -hmm. art form. Leaving anything behind is, is difficult. And I wonder whether the, the book Ten Years of Forest Fringe is in response to leaving a mark mm. or whether working with young people is about passing some kind of uh, ecological baton <laughs> or, or whether you're getting to the age where you're just broody and thought. Yeah. <laughs> I'm definitely not broody. Okay. <laughs> I just, I really enjoy working with children. I think, um, I, yeah, I, I, I really enjoy it. I've always enjoyed hanging out with children and, um, and, and, um, and I, I like making work with them. I think that also, I, I think working with children has proved a really effective way of bringing the work that I make to a, a different constituency audience, you know, that, that I make sort of small-scale work that's often, you know, sort of very intimate and quite kind of conceptual, um, quite interactive. It's not work that's going to fill a big theatre, and it's not work that's going to have a kind of huge marketing budget behind it. So, you know, finding ways of engaging with people who aren't either, you know, like my peers or uh, kind of performance academics uh, or, uh, you, you know, people within a kind of the relatively small kind of community around that work is really important to me. And that actually by working with children and through the kind of, the, the people they're able to connect with di either directly through them or through their schools or through their local communities is a, is a way to bring your work to, uh, to, to people who might not be familiar with that kind of work and who might not kind of encounter it on a regular basis. But so, so, so that's kind of, that, that's another reason why I really like working with children. I mean, in terms of legacy, I mean, I, mean, I don't know. I, I mean, I think I like the sense that, um, I, I like, the idea that the the work itself can have a um, a tangible impact upon the city, it's kind of it's sort of like civic policy um, that that you know that you would be able to you know that this is a means through which to be able to participate in the kind of uh, the social and political discourse of a, of a place. Um, and I think that the thing that has occurred to me over the last few years is that like, I want to be a part of those conversations. But I think that my voice within my voice and my opinions within those conversations is not particularly interesting. That, that as a white cis male, my uh, my voice is often uh, overrepresented in those conversations, right? And so, as an artist, I think I'm increasingly interested in 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 um, trying to find ways through which uh, 
vehicles that enable other people's voices who aren't perhaps normally present within that conversation to, to, to be represented. Um, and um, yeah, and that, that's, that's sort of interesting to me. And, and you know, it would, be, it would be naive to think that, you know, my, 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 my ideas and my voice aren't, you know, inevitably a part of that through the way in which the project is shaped and through the exercises and tasks that we do working with the children. But it does feel like, you know, it's a genuine collaboration and there is, you know, genuinely space for them and their opinions to, to, uh, to, 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 to kind of shape the piece. And that's potentially kind of made most apparent by the degree to which, um, you know, the, the ideas of what the future is going to look like kind of vary from place to place. Just to conclude, because uh, I appreciate I've taken far <laughs> too much of your time already, uh, it would be great just to talk a little bit about Forest Fringe, mm -hmm. um, because that has been such a phenomenal um, engine in shaping the ecology of UK theatre over a number of years, and presumably with all the work you've done internationally is, is now extended beyond that <laughs> remit. Um, and it comes at a time where it feels like that organisation uh, is in flux and in yeah. change. And a big part of that is the 10 years of Forest Fringe book that seems mm -hmm. to look back on all of the achievements uh, that you've accrued through the years. Uh, and part of that is the decision no longer to host a festival at, in Edinburgh yeah. each year, which historically is something that the organisation has always got done. So can you talk to us a little bit about the reasons for that and yeah. what's the catalyst for that change and where you're going? I mean, I suppose when we got to like 10 years, and once we'd done sort of 10 festivals in Edinburgh, we, Deborah and Ira and myself, we sort of wanted to sit down and kind of reflect on what the continued purpose of Forest Fringe was, partly because, partly because it, you know, it felt like we didn't want to just continue doing what we'd always done because that's what we always did until eventually we realised that it's become completely irrelevant and completely redundant and actually quite boring. Um, <laughs> maybe some people think that's already the case but um, hopefully not many um, and so we really wanted to kind of we, we really wanted to reconsider what it is that's important to us about Forest Fringe what, especially as we all kind of grow and change as artists and as people you know um, I think in the first few years of Forest Fringe like uh, what was wonderful was that Forest Fringe kind of filled our lives to a really significant extent and um, that was partly because we wanted it to and partly because we didn't have a lot else going on, you know, and, and that is definitely changing. So we wanted to kind of account for that too and say, you know, we don't, you know, the, the, the profile that Forest Fringe once perhaps brought us and the things that it enables us to do that we couldn't do in our own practice, maybe that isn't the case anymore to the same extent. So how does that change our relationship to Forest Fringe? And so we sort of, we, we met up and we, um, over, you know, a period of several months doing different projects, work, having different conversations with people and um, 
And the thing that the things that really sort of stuck with us was that we want Forest Fringe to be this place that we go to that exists somewhat outside of the strictures and structures of um, of of our ordinary lives and of our professional lives and of our kind of regular artistic practice. And we wanted it to be a space where you could go and play and have fun and and experiment and learn new things and a space where kind of ideas are exchanged and explored. And so it felt to having decided that this is what we love about Forest Fringe and that the sense that I think this is what that, you know, having spoken to other artists, that's kind of what they love about it too, that it's marginal in the sense that it sits at the margins of our ordinary lives and is a place that we can go to to kind of do something a bit different. Um, we thought, well, is that still the case? You know, that, that being the case, is Edinburgh still the, the place that we can best do that? And uh, we felt like it maybe wasn't. Not that we don't love being there, but that we wanted to kind of, you know, maybe give some other people a chance to do that and give ourselves a chance to do something different. So rather than run a venue in Edinburgh each summer, we thought, well, what if we took all of the time and energy and collective will that it takes to put that on and we applied it to some other sort of epic, seemingly impossible slightly ridiculous project that none of us really knows how to do um, whether that be making a film or building a house or uh, you know starting a political party we, we don't really know yet um, and you know let's do that and through the doing of that that'll be like a both a kind of release and an escape from the work that we normally do, but also will be a means by which we can kind of learn new things, make new contacts and relationships and, you know, place ourselves in a different relationship to the world. So that's what we're trying to do. And at the moment, we're just kind of going through a process that we hope will enable us to kind of understand, that will enable us to identify, like, what, what is the, the, the first big project that we want to try and undertake and... and, and, and figure out and the way that we're doing that is through running this kind of monthly art club at Somerset House Studios in uh, in London and hopefully soon we will run versions of that art club in other cities as well so it's like just a regular gathering point that we can use whilst we're in this kind of transitional process sort of transitioning to a completely different way of working so yeah it's exciting um, and uh, as always, we're just sort of like figuring it out as we as we go. <laughs> you make it sound easy, and I don't think it is. <laughs> no, no. Well, Andy, I look forward to the next great thing. <laughs> Thanks. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Always nice to chat to Andy, uh, despite my technical foibles and it being a slightly bustling environment this time. Apologies for the dodgy sound quality. If you're interested in hearing more of these kind of chats in the future, then please do subscribe or leave comments about the podcast via Twitter at Bootworks or forward slash Bootworks if you're a Facebooker. If you have any suggestions of who I should go and talk to next, then maybe drop me an email on james at bootworkstheatre.co.uk. Until next time, thanks for being with us. Bootworks. Theatre. Talkshop. Bootworks Theatre Talkshop.